Hi, my name is Sam Fudo, and welcome to the Understanding Healthcare podcast. Today, I spoke with Edwin Park, research professor at the McCourt School of Public Policy at Georgetown University, where he focuses on issues related to healthcare financing and the impact of legislation like the Affordable Care Act on coverage expansions. Professor Park also analyzes tax policies related to healthcare, private health insurance markets, and prescription drug pricing reforms. We discussed his career in health policy, working across sectors to make healthcare more affordable, accessible, and high quality for everyone, and his insights on some of the most consequential issues we face moving forward. So, here's my conversation with Professor Edwin Park. Hi, Sam. How are you? Good. How are you? Good. Yeah, you know, Professor Park, I'm wondering, you know, what first sparked your interest in health policy and, and really care financing and coverage expansion more specifically? How did how did those issues uh, come to the forefront for you? Well, I was always interested in government public policy, so I majored in public policy in college, but there weren't health policy concentrations in college, at least where I went, and uh, and there wasn't in law school either. But I, you know, I was always interested in healthcare as a field, but had uh, no interest, uh, unlike yourself, in being a health professional. Um, my brother became a doctor, but I had um, no interest in, in pursuing that route. So um, I was very interested, um, you know, in health policies. I got to sort of delve deeper in both college and law school, and I knew I wanted to, to um have that uh, be the focus of my career. So that's how I ended up uh, working in that and, you know, had, you know, different experiences to really um, get experience uh, working in health policy. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you mentioned law, you know, a lot of, while a lot of your work has been um, in academia and law, you've spent some time in the federal government, whether it be with the National Economic Council, the White House, the U.S. Senate, and even presidential transitions. And you also spent 17 years um, as an analyst and advocate at the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities. So how do these different experiences uh, give you a unique perspective on the issues that matter most to the health and, and well-being of all Americans? Sure. I mean, I think, you know, not just health policy, but in public policy, I think it's really critical to have different experiences to understand, you know, how government works, how to, you know, be a, a strong advocate, what is, uh, you know, the most effective way to um, present research. And, you know, having experience within the government has been helpful uh, in my work um, to understand just sort of uh, everything from the intricacies of uh, committee procedure to um, budget rules, uh, how the Congressional Budget Office, the Office of Management and Budget, does what's called scorekeeping, which is essentially estimating costs of various federal proposals, either in terms of spending or how they affect revenues. Um, uh, and then uh, understanding what's effective as someone uh, in a policymaking position, uh, what's effective in terms of advocacy, um, how accessible, easy to use, easy to understand research and analysis can be, and how it plays into uh, the policymaking process. So when I was at the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, which is a research organization focusing on uh, fiscal policy and policies affecting low-income families, um, you know, there was a mix of both research and policy analysis, but also working um, as an advocate, working in partnership with other national and state level uh, advocates on fiscal and health policy issues. That was 
you know, learning, you know, what's the best way to, um, you know, uh, take, you know, complicated research or quantitative and qualitative analysis and make it easily digestible. And that, certainly over my career, it's changed. Um, uh, maybe 20 years ago, um, uh, staff on the Hill, um, uh, officials in the administration, whether it's the White House or in the agency, actually had time to read a five-page to ten-page document. Um, now it's really three bullets, and maybe a social media uh, post is really all what um, uh, policymakers have time to um, take into account. But you know, understanding that that uh, aspect, and then now that I'm in a more academic position at Georgetown University, um, you know, still taking those lessons uh, as an advocate and, and within government and figuring out how my research can be most effective, uh, most uh, be uh, useful, influential in, in, in the policy world, um, you know, both at the federal and state levels. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you mentioned, you know, a lot of the work that we talked about earlier centers around, you know, care financing. Um, you know, as an expert in, in Medicaid and CHIP financing, you know, what do you believe are the most significant challenges and opportunities uh, facing these programs in the United States today? And what strategies do you think should be employed uh, to address them moving forward? Sure. Uh, you know, one of the programs I uh, focus uh, primarily on is the Medicaid program. And under the Medicaid program, it has uh, what's called an open financing uh, system, a federal-state partnership where the federal government picks up a fixed percentage of states' uh, Medicaid costs. And uh, this provides states flexibility um, in, in terms of being able to meet the needs of their low-income residents uh, when um, demand rises, whether it's during a recession, a pandemic, um, a new healthcare um, uh, drug or treatment comes to the market, if, if spending needs go up, the federal government's uh, commitment to uh, uh, the state Medicaid programs goes up as well. Um, and uh, this has been a longstanding uh, debate and fight um, uh, uh, where uh, conservatives uh, have pushed for ending uh, that Medicaid financing system as we know it and replacing it with so-called block grants or per capita caps. And the basic difference is, instead of the federal government picking up a fixed share of state Medicaid costs, uh, the federal government will only pick up either a fixed amount uh, overall uh, for state Medicaid programs each year, or a fixed amount per beneficiary, which is what a per capita cap does. Um, and, you know, it's basically an arbitrary amount that doesn't adjust uh, for actual uh, spending needs. Um, usually block grants per capita caps are intended to produce uh, federal savings, um, uh, to reduce the deficit or offset other priorities like uh, tax cuts, for example. Right. But if you have, um, you know, a target for savings, the way you do that is you grow the amount of federal funding, whether it's overall or on a per beneficiary basis, at a rate that's um, uh, less than what's expected um, uh, for what states need. Moreover, those cuts get even larger um, over time because um, those savings compound if the growth rate, for example, is general inflation, which is, you know, um, usually uh, much lower than um, 
Healthcare cost growth is expected in the Medicaid program. The cuts get larger and larger over time. And then in individual years or over time, those cuts could even be larger uh, if there's unexpected increases in costs. Again, a recession, um, you know, a public health emergency, a natural disaster, a, a new drug like um, uh, we saw in 2014 with hepatitis C treatments, um, which are the first time there was a cure for hepatitis C, as well as some of the new drugs that are coming to market, whether, you know, there be gene therapies, including for sickle cell. Um, and when those costs go up, right now, the federal government increases it, uh, its spending uh, and funding for state Medicaid programs, but under block, under per capita cap, that wouldn't be the case. Uh, so that's a shift in cost to states. States are on the hook. They're holding the bag. They're either going to have to raise taxes or it's far more likely they're going to have to um, cut their um, Medicaid programs, eligibility benefits, provider rates. Um, as a subset of this, you know, it doesn't get a lot of attention, but I have spent quite a bit of time uh, working on Medicaid issues related to Puerto Rico and the territories. And unlike the states today that has that open-ended financing system I mentioned, they operate under block grants. Uh, so they get a fixed amount of federal funding. And that's always been well below what they uh, require for their Medicaid programs. And so their Medicaid programs, uh, while they've made some improvements due to temporary increases in federal funding from Congress, um, those programs don't meet uh, basic federal requirements for Medicaid that apply to states today. Uh, so for example, uh, they don't cover all mandatory uh, populations in terms of eligibility. They don't cover mandatory benefits to some degree. Um, and as a result, there's much less access uh, for needed care. So for example, in Puerto Rico, not until 2020 did they cover any drugs um, that cured hepatitis C, even though, they, as I mentioned, they first came to market in 2014. So it's um, something that I hope over time, not only will we not have block grants or caps for state Medicaid programs, but that we will finally convert the block grant structure that currently applies to the territories to the same system that uh, is available to states today so that they can uh, better meet uh, the needs of their uh, their low income residents yeah i mean we could have a and we could have a whole longer conversation on the impacts of you know the public health emergency and that unwinding and all of this enrollment and and even you know you mentioned a coverage expansion that, that leads sort of perfectly into my next question about um, some of we work at focusing on the affordable care act as well and coverage expansion as a result of that you know, what are your thoughts on the current state of the ACA and what changes would you recommend to strengthen it to ensure its long-term sustainability? Sure. I mean, you know, unfortunately, um, you know, when the ACA was enacted, the Medicaid expansion, which covers um, all adults up to 138% of the federal poverty um, line, uh, was made optional. So it was intended to be mandatory, applied to all states. Uh, it was made optional by the Supreme Court when it upheld the overall um, uh, Affordable Care Act uh, held it constitutional um, when there was a challenge uh, about um, a decade ago. So while there's been huge progress and the vast majority of states have taken up the Medicaid expansion, there are still 11 states uh, that have not um, adopted the expansion. The most recent was South Dakota, which um, approved it uh, via a voter referendum. Mm -hmm. There is uh, some positive news. Uh, there was just um, this week uh, uh, an agreement among 
Republican legislative leaders in the state of North Carolina uh, to adopt the Medicaid expansion. And the hope is that um, in the next few weeks, um, it will be um, passed by both houses and then signed into law by the governor, who's been a longstanding champion for uh, the Medicaid expansion. So assuming that, that happens, there'll be only 10 states um, um, who still haven't taken up the expansion. But unfortunately, um, these are states with large numbers of uninsured adults who would benefit from the expansion, like Texas, Florida, and Georgia. Um, but uh, despite overwhelming public support uh, for uh, the Medicaid expansion, uh, those states, uh, their, their um, uh, governor, legislative leaders have refused to take up the expansion. So that means that um, low-income individuals who have incomes too high for Medicaid, uh, in the case of parents, this could be as low as 20% of the of federal poverty line for other adults. Uh, without um, uh, children, they they are not eligible at all, um, irrespective of their income, um, and they have incomes too low to qualify for subsidies in the Affordable Care Act's marketplaces. So as a result, you have very poor individuals, excuse me, uh, who um, don't have access to coverage, um, and as a result, are uninsured and foregoing needed care. So that's obviously um, a huge uh, problem. And, you know, the hope is that more states take it up. There's incentives um, uh, to take up the expansion where the federal government's going to increase uh, the federal Medicaid matching rate for two years, in addition to the permanent commitment to pick up 90% of the cost of the expansion. Uh, but unless there is a change in uh, political environment in some of these states, uh, unfortunately, it seems unlikely in the short term. Uh, the other is um, the federal government is part of the American Rescue Plan, and then most recently as part of the Consolidated Appropriations Act enacted in December, um, has increased temporarily the subsidies available to purchase marketplace coverage, um, but those uh, subsidies need to be um, uh, made permanent, uh, those increases uh, be made permanent. So, you know, the hope is there may be, um, you know, a federal uh, a solution at some point or states um, uh, decide to take up the Medicaid expansion, you know, to resolve this coverage gap, unfortunately, in these handful of states that continue to hold out despite strong public support for the expansion. Right. And not even strong public support, but also the great financial incentives, like you mentioned as well for the states in terms of this sharing um, in the costs. Uh, you mentioned Hep C and other, uh, you know, uh, drugs and cover and regarding access and coverage to them earlier. Um, with the ongoing debate uh, surrounding drug pricing policies, uh, what do you think should be the key components of, you know, such policies, and how do you think they could effectively address this issue of, um, you know, high drug costs as well as uh, markets for innovation and competition? Um, any reflections, I guess, on the most recent passing of the Inflation Reduction Act as well? Sure, uh, you know, I've focused on drug pricing from the Medicaid perspective, and it doesn't get a lot of attention. People aren't very familiar with it, but Medicaid is very successful in lowering costs for, for state Medicaid programs while maintaining access. So for example, under the Medicaid rebate program, manufacturers have to provide um, significant discounts um, uh, the lower the net price of prescription drugs um, that they furnish to low-income beneficiaries. And according to the Congressional Budget Office, Medicaid is providing um, uh, or is obtaining the 
largest discounts um, relative to other public uh, programs or uh, public agencies. And so they're getting discounts that are either greater or as good as, for example, the Department of Veterans Affairs, which is often touted as the most successful purchaser uh, in the federal government. And as part of that rebate program, again, this isn't well known, uh, there's strong beneficiary protections. So not only do manufacturers, if they want their drugs covered um, under Medicaid, have to provide these significant rebates, but there's an open formulary protection. That is, Medicaid will uh, cover nearly all FDA-approved drugs. Uh, that being said, you know, uh, state Medicaid programs can uh, set preferred drug lists, uh, require prior authorization, use other utilization management tools like step therapy and things like that. But in general, they can't exclude drugs entirely with, 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 uh, with a handful of exceptions. Um, and co-payments are capped. So certain populations like children, uh, pregnant women, um, aren't subject to any uh, cost sharing at all. And for those um, other Medicaid beneficiaries, uh, co-payments for prescription drugs are um, uh, limited no more to no more than nominal uh, co-payment amounts. So you have this open formulary protection and you have uh, cost-sharing protections. And as a result, um, you're both lowering the cost, making it affordable for state Medicaid programs, which oftentimes are subject to state budget cuts. Mm -hmm. um, at the same time, you're providing protections for beneficiaries so they have access. And uh, that's a critical component. Um, and, and again, we see the value of this in um, uh, relative to what happens in the territories. Puerto Rico pays much higher costs for drugs because it's not part of the rebate program. And it also is not subject to the open formulary protections. So some drugs aren't covered at all, including whole classes, like as I mentioned earlier, um, hepatitis C drugs, not until 2020, even though they first came to the market in 2014. So, you know, I think the Medicaid rebate program is a good model uh, for how to lower costs while protecting beneficiary access. And we're seeing um, parts of that happen where uh, Medicare looked to Medicaid, for example, for the inflation-related rebates that were included in the Infl Inflation Reduction Act. Um, one other aspect of the Inflation Reduction Act that uh, I've tried to highlight is that when there are changes in Medicare due to the fragmented nature of our drug pricing market, they can have interactions with Medicaid. So, you know, some of the provisions in uh, the Inflation Reduction Act can either lower Medicaid costs or increase Medicaid costs on a net basis, even though there are no explicit Medicaid provisions in the Inflation Reduction Act. Yeah, it's all really insightful and really interesting because I think, you know, similar to what you're saying, a lot has, you know, happened over the past many years, but a lot of it sort of, glean, you know, gleans insights in terms of, you know, what does that path like look like moving forward in terms of how can we build upon some of the progress that's been made um, to tackle um, some of these issues and also look at models across different states and territories, like you mentioned. Um, I, I touched on this briefly earlier, but um, with the COVID-19 pandemic highlighting uh, deep disparities in healthcare access and outcomes, um, what long-term solutions do you see as you know, proving to be most effective in terms of addressing, you know, the forthcoming challenges with insurance coverage, especially I mentioned earlier, the unwinding of the public health emergency, um, but also making sure people can afford uh, the care they need when they need it, like we've discussed so far. Sure, um, a couple things. So with, um, you know, one of the COVID-19 uh, relief bills, uh, the Families First um, uh, Act, included a continuous coverage requirement. So for your mm -hmm. listeners, that 
continuous coverage requirement was that uh, state Medicaid programs couldn't disenroll anyone who either was already enrolled or newly enrolled over the course of the COVID-19 public health emergency. And it really allowed Medicaid to be an important backstop right. uh, during the pandemic where Medicaid enrollment significantly increased and more than offset losses in employer-sponsored insurance that usually would otherwise occur with the disruptions from COVID-19 in terms of the economy, employment, um, and the like. And so uh, we didn't see an increase in the uninsured. Um, and in fact, we saw declines, uh, uh, thanks in large part to this contagious coverage requ uh, requirement. But that protection is going away. It's um, under the Consolidated Appropriations Act in, in uh, the end of December. States can start uh, disenrolling uh, low-income individuals and families starting April 1st. A handful of states um, are starting to send out notices and do redeterminations to, to see who is uh, now ineligible. So they've become ineligible over the course of the pandemic. For example, if they have a higher paying job, their income's gone up and they're no longer eligible. Now, I think one thing that's important is that the continuous coverage protection obviously um, wasn't going to stay around forever and there had to be a point where states would have to start redetermining eligibility. Uh, but the worry, of course, is that it's not just going to be people who are now ineligible losing their Medicaid coverage, but that people who remain eligible are having their coverage terminated in large part because of procedural problems. Um, they never received, for example, the notice in the mail uh, right. because they moved and people have moved quite a bit over the course of the pandemic. Or they fail to produce the right forms or there are errors made by state Medicaid programs because they are short staffed in terms of their eligibility workforces. Um, and as a result, people get disenrolled, they end up uninsured, uh, even though they should remain eligible for Medicaid. Now, the Consolidated Appropriations Act as part of the unwinding provision did require um, states to um, meet certain procedural safeguards, um, certain of how they contact beneficiaries. Mm -hmm. They have to report data that provides red flags to um, uh, the federal government related to how the redetermination process is going. And it does give um, authority to the, the Centers for Medicaid, Medicare and Medicaid Services, which administers uh, the Medicaid program, uh, to halt disenrollments in a state um, if they're not meeting existing federal requirements related to redeterminations and renewals. So the hope is that um, states want to do the right thing um, and that the federal government is very proactive in ensuring that states are doing the right thing so that uh, people aren't being disenrolled inappropriately. Um, and we know that that happens pre-pandemic. There is a phenomenon called churn where um, children, other uh, beneficiaries um, get disenrolled for procedural reasons and they come right back on the program once they need healthcare because they've always been eligible. Um, and that was a serious problem in terms of maintaining continuity of care. We hope that this won't happen, but uh, certainly there are some states that I worry are focused most on trying to reduce costs, disenrolling people as fast as possible, irrespective of who's eligible and who's not. Right, absolutely, and I, I, I it, it, certainly something that I think a lot of us will keep our eye on as this sort of moves forward. I mean, you mentioned April first; it's it'll, it's going to fly by, and we'll be there before you know it. So, um, keeping track of that, like you mentioned.
Um, a lot of what we've discussed today has been about, you know, how do we, how do a lot of these federal programs really get implemented and roll out at the state level? Um, and you have a lot of experience working on health policy, both at the federal level and state level. So I'm wondering, you know, what you think is the most significant difference between the two in terms of policymaking. We've touched on that a bit, um, but also how to navigate these differences and, and what should current and future health leaders know about um, uh, this sort of dichotomy between the two? So, I, I mean, I've never worked um, as a state-level advocate, but I certainly, as over the career, have worked uh, extensively with state-level advocates. And I think you probably heard the saying from some of your other guests that, you know, once you know one state Medicaid program, you know one state Medicaid program, there's 51 different state Medicaid programs, plus the Medicaid programs in, in Puerto Rico and the other territories. Um, they're completely different. Um, there's different rules, uh, different ways how states run things. You know, there's certain federal requirements, mandatory benefits, mandatory uh, eligibility, but in terms of you know, how they administer the programs, right. uh, whether they use managed care. There's so many different aspects that are different. And as a state level advocate, um, you know, you have to become very familiar with the state specific uh, aspects of the healthcare programs in the state. Um, and then I think separately, just the, the politics at the state level are, um, are really magnified. I mean, some of the issues that affect federal policy, um, like the filibuster, gerrymandering, are uh, that much more uh, intense at the state level. Um, you know, for example, I mentioned, you know, the Medicaid expansion in, in the holdout states is very popular. Yeah. But um, uh, in many ways, legislative leaders are immune from uh, uh, the the political opinions of of the overwhelming majority of the public because of the intense gerrymandering that goes on at the, st at the state level. Um, I think also, um, you know, that in many cases, uh, state politics can be, you know, very much, um, you know, sort of a small number of individuals, small number of lobbyists, uh, that it's still very sort of, um, uh, insular in a way that, um, you know, advocacy can be very difficult, but, you know, state la level advocacy, I think is, you know, very rewarding. And one of the, the, uh, the, um, important aspects is you can always make change somehow. It, it may be marginal. It may not be, um, as, as groundbreaking as maybe possible in other states, but whether it's administrative advocacy or legislative advocacy, um, outreach efforts, um, a lot can be done at the state level. But it's certainly um, what's different at the federal versus state level is that, you know, federal level, I understand generally, you know, how policy works, what the process is, but the state level, it really is so unique. And um, uh, to each individual state uh, about how um, the political process works, how policy works. And um, I, I find it's often, uh, easier for state level advocates to work possibly at the federal level than the other way around just because it's so um, intensely uh, local in terms of how how things work in terms of health policy. Right. And I mean, even different needs, different demographics, different, right? And all that sort of differs in terms of outcomes and what you're trying to achieve with those policies. Uh, yeah, definitely. You know, whether it's um, economics, uh, it's politics, uh, as you say, demographics, 
um, both in terms of community co of color, uh, urban versus rural, uh, immigrant populations. There, there are all these different aspects that affect um, uh, you know, what's needed, where are there uh, vulnerabilities um, uh, in, in gaps uh, in the healthcare system in states um, and uh, uh, the variation is, is quite significant. Yeah, absolutely. One more question I had is, is, you know, you know, for young people who are interested in healthcare and public policy, um, what advice would you give based on your career, everything we've discussed today and the future trends that you've touched on? Sure. I, I think, um, you know, whether it's um, internships, whether it's as a long-term career uh, that, you know, having experience in government service um, is, is really important just to understand um, how policy is, is made. And, uh, you know, there are many different aspects of government service at the federal and state level. You can work in, uh, you know, a more uh, political position, governor's uh, office, uh, the White House, in an agency, um, uh, administering programs, whether it's a state Medicaid agency or the Department of Health and Human Services, specifically the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, or um, you know, working in, in the legislative uh, arena, um, working as a staffer. And um, I had relatively uh, you know, brief stints uh, in uh, both the Senate and, and the White House, but um, certainly that was invaluable in terms of just understanding um, you know, how government works and how uh, policy is made um, and how policy can go from, you know, a legislative, uh, you know, process with a, all the way through enactment, but then also most critically how it's uh, implemented, how it's administered over the long run uh, is really important. And um, one of the things I've always had uh, missing is agency experience. Um, and so, um, you know, when I did work on the presidential transition, you know, that gave me a, a window into um, um, how agencies function, but certainly I, um, uh, I haven't had that opportunity and that's something that uh, will be incredibly valuable in terms of understanding how governments actually run on a certain nuts and bolts basis. But definitely public service, I think is important. It may not be, uh, a career for everyone, but having that experience in some fashion, I think, is really critical for um, being um, someone who's working effectively um, in, in health policy. Yeah, absolutely. And, and thank you so much for sharing that. Um, Professor Park, it, it really means a lot that you're able to, to make time today and, and, and share insights on not only your career, but also many of the issues that we face in, in healthcare and, and health policy moving forward. So, so thanks so much again. Yeah, glad to do it. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope my conversation with Professor Park provided a unique view of where we're at in addition to what we have to look forward to in health policy, particularly as it relates to expanding access and lowering costs. Professor Park's experience and expertise on these issues allowed for an exciting discussion on lessons learned over the past few years, as well as a roadmap for the future of healthcare financing. So, I hope you're doing well and staying safe, and remember, we can't just consume healthcare, we have to understand healthcare.